0: We're in Galatians one. I just need to enjoying the backyard this afternoon with Russell and Titus. Russell had a pee-wee league football that we were throwing around and Titus had a Wee Wee League football. It was just so cute. And we're kind of tossing it around and and just having studied today Galatians and just you know wanting to be teaching my son the gospel just asked him you know what grace was and just got to have a neat conversation about grace of course he had caleb's alien sunglasses on that caleb left in our backyard so (laughs) trying to have a serious conversation with an alien in the backyard but but um you know what's grace russell and well you know i'm kind of thinking is it mercy is it like mercy dad and like oh really close really close and And uh, said, you know, grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's the gifts of the Lord being poured out on us when we don't deserve it. And, you know, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve the judgment of God. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve hell for all eternity. But it's God's mercy. He's rich in mercy. And so uh, they're similar, you know, but they're kind of the the antithesis of each other. But they're both good. They're both awesome. And so neat to have that conversation with a nine-year-old. And, um, you know, encourage you guys to be having conversations with your little ones and with the little ones in the church as you guys are around them. Just some deep conversations about grace. And um, I remember, um, you know, just being raised in church, and not that it was necessarily impressed upon me one way or another from the outside, but just, you know, how many of you just know, man, I'm better with God when I'm having, you know, devotions every day, you know, or or going through those periods where, hey, if I wear a tie to church, like, righteous, you know, I mean, I'm good to go with God, right? And, you know, there are a million different things, you know, that we'll be getting into that um we just need the Lord to kind of bring in our context of what we live in today uh that we throw at ourselves that we put on ourselves it's really satanic that we begin to kind of puff ourselves up before the Lord that he would owe me something or give me something because I've done this or I am that and so you know you know come on you know and you got to remember Romans, where the Lord says that He is a debtor to no man. You know what is God supposed to pay a debt to you because you you know threw a collared shirt on this weekend or because you wore dockers you know rather than Levi's or because you are a Lutheran or because you built a church or you know he's a debtor to you because of those things um no, he's not, and so we've got to come away from in this series any sort of self-righteousness, self-innocence, realizing that we have no righteousness, that by keeping laws and doing rituals and being religious, we will never measure up because we're too weak in the flesh. And not only that, but we have an inherent kernel of sin deep within our heart. But the good news is, is that, God sent his son, Jesus. God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived that perfect life. He had to be fully 100% man so that he could live the perfect life. And he had to be 100% God or he couldn't have lived the perfect life. Uh, And so his sacrifice as a man and as God perfectly atoned for our failure to keep any sort of right, innocent law. Um, or perfection before God, and so, you know, for me, just kind of growing up with um, just an innate default of gotta do stuff, I gotta do, I gotta be, I gotta do, um, you know, I I remember that wasn't anything my mom put on me, or anything like that, you know, Um, maybe certain denominations that we were involved in, you know, you show up in a suit, and so you show up in a suit, and you're, you know, (laughs) you're you're looking good, you must be holy, you know, and, and, you know, that's no reflection of what's going on underneath the suit, um, that unless it's been washed by the blood of Jesus, it is not holy, and so I just remember kind of that pivot in my life when I was uh, going on 15, I was still 14, so I was eighth grade, and my sister took me to the Calvary Chapel Youth Group in Corvallis, and, you know, just walking in the door, and, just sensing the presence of the Holy Spirit in this room of high school kids that were, like, worshiping, it was like they were somewhere else. You know, as they're worshiping God, they just, they were with God. Wherever they were, they were with God, you know. And I just remember just watching guys, just high school, picture this. Maybe you've never seen this, but 17-year-olds just, bowed down on the ground, singing to Jesus and worshiping Jesus and just, you know, in an intimate worship relationship uh with Jesus. And these are high schoolers that had been saved out of drugs and out of sex and out of being the most popular kid in the school dealing drugs and deal you know (laughs) all of that stuff and saved out of that and now preaching Bible studies in the school, standing up on picnic tables preaching and transformed by grace and these are kids that i grew up with in that religious background and just something had changed and i remember just being hungry for whatever these kids had and i remember they were all talking about grace i mean when was the first time you were talking about grace (laughs) you know these were 17 16 15 14 year olds middle schoolers talking about god's grace And just beginning to learn as our youth pastor, Mark, would teach through Romans and would lead us through uh, books about grace. And I remember reading Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, he wrote a book called Why Grace Changes Everything. And that was, you know, going through Romans and going through Galatians and just learning that it's not about works of righteousness that I have done, but it's about the works of righteousness Jesus has done And we can rest in that. And that makes us want to follow him. It makes us want to know him. Just like a hero who saves you out of a burning building or pushes you out of the way of a train or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, Don't you want to know that guy? I mean, don't you just want to be with him? And, you know, that's, that's what motivates us to live for Jesus. It's his grace. And so, just really believe that God wants to take us in Galatians and just bring us to that type of deep, intimate, thankful relationship with God and his grace. And uh, <clears throat> and so as we go into the book here, uh, Galatians has been called the Declaration of Independence for Christian Liberty. That's this book you know it's for freedom that christ has made us free we're gonna read in a few weeks this declaration of freedom it's apart from works it's apart from being a slave and having to earn something the great reformer martin luther loved this letter in a in a special way he called galatians the Catherine von bora that was his wife's name and he says i am married to this book You know, Martin Luther, this champion of grace. Leon Morris wrote, Galatians is a passionate letter, the outpouring of the soul of a preacher on fire for his Lord and deeply committed to bringing his hearers to an understanding of what saving faith is. And um, Aaron and Jeremy, I think it was, and me and myself and I, Went up to uh, the Spurgeon Fellowship a couple months ago and um, just blanking on the guy's name that spoke at it, who taught us about the J-curve. Uh, but who was the other guy? The guy that actually spoke at uh, the J-curve, dude? Who's the J-curve guy? I follow him on, uh, it's a different guy. I'll have to, oh, maybe you were there that one, the J-curve. Come on, Blaine. <laughs> Your memory can't be as bad as mine. Anywho, you might remember he was talking about... Um, He loves to just read the Gospels and just get to know Jesus a little more in them. Just, you know, there's just something special about that. I mean, we might read the Gospels because I got my Bible in a year plan and I got to get through it in the next month, you know. know? And he's just like, I just love to almost like read the Gospels and kind of, it's almost like I'm sitting there in the meadow and Jesus is there and I'm just, what's he going to do? And how's he going to do it? and what, how's he going to treat that person, you know? And man, you know with that type of deep observation of Jesus, um, that's what Paul, that's where Paul wants to take us in Galatians. This is an earlier book of Paul's, written earlier on in his life, about 4950 a.D and uh, Paul had been a Christian for about 15 years at this point. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had just completed their first missionary journey uh, from Acts 13 and 14. And about the time they returned to Antioch, which was the missionary hub of the day, Jewish Christians came up from Jerusalem and Judea and they began going through the churches and saying that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Um, That all of your external stuff needed to be changed before your inside could be changed by jesus so yeah jesus is good the great you know work on the cross and the blood and all that and the open tomb all that that's real that's good that's good but before you even go there you know you've got to keep the law of moses um you've got to be circumcised you've got to keep the sabbath still and this and that and they began to put the burden of the law back on people um saying that you had to keep the law in order to be a christian and they went up into the region of Asia Minor, the area of Turkey, to um, some of the churches in Galatia. And so Paul writes this letter in response to these um, guys that we, we call Judaizers. So it's kind of a weird name, and I don't think you even see that word in the scripture. I could be wrong, but, um, you know, Judaizers. And it speaks of Jews coming up saying, in order to be saved in Jesus... You got to do stuff, okay? So they're going back to the law. And so the theme of Galatians is, hey, don't go back to doing stuff. Don't depart from grace, all right? And uh, Paul probably wrote this letter just before Acts 15 when the big Jerusalem council debate takes place where they resolve this issue and they send a letter out that says, hey, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to keep the law to be saved. Um, We're saved by grace through faith. Um, But for the sake of conscience of people, here's some good things to do just for your witness and your testimony out there in the world. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, get into our text. And we're going to obviously learn more about all this as we go along. This uh, Declaration of Independence uh, for Christian Freedom. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul's the author of the book. No one, even critics, don't argue with this. uh, But he's an apostle or a delegate or an ambassador of the gospel. Uh, Specifically, it means he was sent out as a missionary by Jesus. Today in 2016, we don't have the same kind of apostles Um, But we do have missionaries that we do send out. Um, Notice that he is an apostle, but it's not through men that he became an apostle. He was commissioned by the Trinity. And here we specifically see the father and the son who had commissioned him. And that's, you know, uh, I think that the theme of Wednesday night, as you come here, you're being equipped a bit deeper for being in ministry in this church and and uh you know everyone who's coming you're growing deeper in jesus and this will be encouraging for you as it was for me that you don't have to have an ordination certificate to be a minister of jesus you don't have to have a big framed plaque on your wall you know to to do the works for the lord or to even be a pastor uh we see here that it wasn't through men and it wasn't through a printing press that paul was an apostle it was through the lord and that's the same here. Um, Jeremy, just two weeks ago, became an elder three weeks ago now in the church. And it wasn't because we laid hands on him that he became an elder. It was because the Lord had already commissioned him. And we just came alongside and recognized that. Uh, it's just a work of the Lord that um, that we are ordained for the ministry. And uh, just recognizing that God has already done that. But notice that uh, it's through... Uh, jesus christ and god the father and if you've got a pen you might just underline who raised him from the dead the resurrection you guys the resurrection it is pillar to christianity it is it is the issue in christianity did jesus rise from the dead because if he did it we can all go do something else with our time but if he did then he's lord and everything that he says is true the resurrection was so important to the early church, it changed a bunch of Jews from meeting on Saturday to meeting on Sunday. That's a huge thing. That's huge for them to change their, the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the Shabbat Shalom. You know, uh, now it's on Sunday, the first day of the week. That's, that's big. Jesus must have risen from the dead, just that alone. Okay, but You also see in the book of Acts, as you read, next time you read the book of Acts, just have a pen with you and mark down every time the resurrection is mentioned in the book of Acts. And when we taught through the book of Acts, I put a little R um, next to every mention of the resurrection. And time after time after time after time, you see the apostles, whenever they're talking about Jesus, they're talking about him rising from the dead. And I've been trying to implement that in my sharing and in my preaching. And when we went to Nepal, man, it's not good news if Jesus is still hanging on the cross. But it's good news if he came off the cross and is now ascended into heaven. That's the good news. And so I encourage you guys to let the resurrection be part of your preaching and part of your sharing. But also regularly in the epistles, the the apostles in their epistles, in their letters, they would talk about the resurrection. And first off, the first verse, we've got Paul referencing that Jesus rose from the dead. Hopefully we go a little faster than this. Okay. Verse 2. Okay. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Real quick, Galatians was not written to a single church in a single city like the other epistles, like Corinthians and Philippians. Uh, it was written to a bunch of churches, about four or five churches in the region of Galatia. It's like if we got a letter that said to the churches in central Oregon, and you know, and so a bunch of them went out, widely distributed. Um, it's uh, there was there was a northern Galatia with a bunch of cities, and there was a southern Galatia. There's debate on to which part Paul's writing to, but because in acts 13 and 14 he was ministering in southern galatia in the regions of antioch pisidia iconium lystra derby uh, places that he was persecuted he's actually stoned there um, not with grass but with rocks um, <laughs> just wanted you to know some of you might be new to christianity and you're like whoa um he was killed there but he came back to life some of you aren't laughing sorry and uh um, Not only did he come back to life, but he kept preaching. He actually went back into the cities and kept preaching. And so Paul wanted his letters to have a wide circulation in the region of Galatia so that this message, this declaration of independence for Christian freedom would be read in a whole region. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Really quick. This is a familiar greeting of Paul, and it was um, kind of a ministry to the Greeks and the Jews. The Greeks would say grace when they would greet one another, and the Jews would say peace or shalom when they would greet each other. So it kind uh, <clears> of <throat> ministers to both parties here. This exact verse or phrase is used five times in Paul's different epistles. Um, You know, normally I think it's kind of silly after preaching through the New Testament so many times to make a big deal out of the order that Paul says this greeting. But considering the letter that we're in, I think it's important to remind ourselves of it. This grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I just remember being that 15-year-old kid and hearing this said, and it's stuck with me ever since, but that we'll never know peace until we've known grace first. Once we know grace, once we know that it's not about what we've done, but it's about the free gift in Jesus Christ, then we will have peace and all those other aspects of our life. Uh, Lenski says, when grace is ours, peace must of necessity follow. Just ask yourself that right now. Maybe you've got a little pen and you would write it in the margin of your Bible. Am I a man or a woman marked by peace? Am I a man or a woman marked by peace? Whether it's being a peacemaker with one another, peace of heart, peace of mind. You know, I think the question needs to be asked, have you fully been drinking of God's grace and basking in his grace and camping out in his grace? Paul uses the word grace a hundred times in his writings and all the other authors in the scriptures, they use it 55 times combined. And so it's been said that he's the apostle of grace. That is so true as we're learning more about Paul. <clears throat> Martin Luther says these two terms, grace and peace, constitute Christianity. Grace and peace. Grace and, let, that, let that be the new greeting that you share with people. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. Verse 4, he gave himself for our sins That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He gave himself for our sins. That's grace. That's a gift. He willingly gave a gift to us when he gave the gift of himself for our sins. I loved what uh, 2 Corinthians 7 or 8, or I'm sorry, 8 or 9. It's the one of the last verses in one of those. And it says, um, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that's Jesus. He gave himself for our sins. Interesting, John three sixteen. you guys know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus was a gift from the Father to us. God the Father gave God the Son as a gift. But Jesus also gave himself as a gift. He will... Whoa, man, falling asleep already. Man, we thought Casey would be the first one to go. She was close. (laughs) The Son gave himself as a ransom for many. One of my favorite verses. He gave himself as a ransom for many. And he says in John 17... Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I could take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. He gave himself. He laid down his own life. Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He became a man <clears throat> for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Then listen. Listen. So that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So Jesus, becoming condescending, going from God on the throne, taking on flesh, becoming a man, that's called being little lower than the angels. uh, He became a man, dwelt among us in flesh, suffering, and by the grace of God, that he would taste death for everyone. Isn't that interesting that it's by the grace of God, by the gift of God, that Jesus would taste death for us? And then it says he tasted death for us, or he gave himself for our sins. I'm just pulling these phrases apart, you guys. These are so good. That he might deliver us from this present evil age. Just think about this evil age for a minute. Think about what you've witnessed. I mean, it doesn't take long. In, in, in a 24-hour period, we've, we've racked up a whole lot of encounters with this present evil age, haven't we? You know, back at the beginning of time, there was a present evil age. In Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood, right before Noah was given the task to make the ark, it says, Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's creation by Genesis chapter 6. Every thought that man had was only evil continually. Genesis 6, beginning of the Bible. And it says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. Genesis 6. We've already messed it up that bad. That God regrets that he'd ever made us. He was grieved. And when you look right before that, you know, there's something going on. There's a little debate, but I've always understood it, that fallen angels were coming to earth and mating with women, and they were having children that were these giants called Nephilim. There's some debate. Maybe it was actually just big dudes that were, you know, whatever I don't know. But you know, most of the Calvary circles anyways understand that to mean that there that fallen angels were there was immorality big time on like a spiritual earthly level and there was just this wickedness. And that was what led up to God destroying the earth with a flood. The days of Noah were evil. Then you go 4000 years and you've got Paul and what does he call his days a present evil age? Okay. and then you've got the end times and the end days the day of the lord and i believe that we're there and we see that jesus said that as the days of noah were so also will the coming of the son of man be for as in the days before the flood they were eating drinking marrying and given in marriage until the day that noah entered the ark now it's not bad that they were get, that people were getting married but the issue was they were focused on this earth. Partying and, ri- and uh, revelry and focused on the things of this earth. And maybe that marriage and that stuff that's referring to this wicked stuff with the you know, the angels and all that kind of stuff. The sons of God, as it says. But uh, anyways, it, says, uh, it goes on to saying that that will precede the day of the Lord. So Noah's day was the present evil age. Paul's day was the present evil age. And today, wouldn't you say, is the present evil age. Think of what the prophets were told. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And Russell came home from school today and there's my son and he's eating a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios and talking about the genius that thought of pouring milk on those Cheerios. He says, I don't know who thought of this, but this is science. You know, this is incredible. And then he goes from that and he says... I think it's so dumb that there's a rule that we can't listen to songs about God in in school. You know, so there's that, right? And then he goes to play a song on my phone that's a song that they hear in school. And it's a song of a story of a guy's life, and by the time he was 11 years old, he's smoking grass and drinking whiskey. Yeah, this is in school, right? So, I'm sorry, children, Um, no songs about Jesus, please. Get that junk out of here. Instead, let's listen to this song about 11-year-olds walking in immorality and sin and, and you know, losing their innocence and their soberness of mind. Way more edifying, way more good for our children. We just see the present evil age, don't we? A couple of Christian comedians that I like to listen to, I like to listen to their podcast. You know, they, they've, uh, you see that they have rubbed shoulders with guys like Francis Chan and matt chandler and mark driscoll and some just some good solid scripture teachers and and yet you start to listen and you start to see an erosion of the authority of the word of god into their life so much so that when the one of them ha, um, is pregnant their, his wife is pregnant and they have one of those tests done to see if they would have if the baby would have a genetic genetic chromosomal disorder uh, they go ahead and do that test they find out there's a risk and they start to consider abortion and of course, everything in their reasoning tosses this out the window and it all becomes worldly wisdom. And that's, these are Christian comedians, okay? And as things go on in their life, you begin to see that, that the word of God, it's over here. And they begin to listen to the wisdom of this world. And they had a hilarious um, new video come out and Lindsay and I are laughing on it. And I find out that someone that they, just had to do this video with them was on American Idol and they sang this song and it's funny and, and then you find out that this um, this American Idol singer just came out as gay, openly homosexual. One of the music videos that he's doing was supposed to, he's supposed to be leaving a club with this beautiful girl and he said I just have to be honest it can't be a beautiful girl it's got to be um, a beautiful guy and then he kisses the guy uh, there in the movie you know and so um, this is our present evil age that we're living in really not that much different than paul's age you know when you study rome and you study you know not that different than the prophets day when you're studying the idols and the idolatry not that different than um the days of sodom and gomorrah you know reading that with my son recently as we walk through genesis together you know um but that isn't that overwhelming (laughs) until what until we look at who has come to deliver us from this present evil age The one who gave himself as a gift. Oh, we can get worked up about it. We can really get, you know, and and there may be responsibility that we have to be, you know, there is responsibility. The darkness presses in because the light isn't pushing out. But we can't take the trumpet into our hands without resting in that Jesus came to die for us and to deliver us from this present evil age. Ah. He came to die and deliver us from this present evil age, and that was all according to the will of our God and Father. This was the plan of God from all eternity that we would be delivered. It's God's will. And when He has a will to deliver us from evil and wickedness in Trinity, in Trinitary form, it says, verse 5, He will be given glory forever and ever amen the gospel of jesus christ giving his life to deliver us from this present evil age so that we can be apostles sent out ought to always conclude with to him be the glory forever and ever let that just be the fruit of your lips is praise to our god all the time you guys don't let it get old to him be glory forever and ever. Grace and peace, brother. Grace and peace. There's our greeting, right? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Okay? And what's our conclusion? To him be the glory forever and ever. But as your little signature at the end of your emails. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Verses 6 through 12, we studied on Sunday in depth as we see the, the Galatians' situation and their departure from grace. We see verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Um, again, I mentioned it on Sunday, but this letter is takes a whole new, um, It's it's in a camp of its own, how quickly Paul goes from like a, hey, how's it going, to what are you doing? Okay, you know, as we write letters to our children, as we write letters to our friends, there's this, oh, you know, wonderful things, springtime, and the flowers, and the this, and the that, and the kids are doing this, and, you know, and then, hey, you know, I kind of heard through the grapevine that you might be living with so-and-so, and, man, I just really want to encourage you, you know, here's a, you know, and, and but usually that, I think someone once said it's like a sandwich rebuke, you know, that's sandwiched between, like, wonderful, nice things and then we're gonna end it on a wonderful nice thing and in between there I got a good correction for you you know but Paul kind of like leaves the top bread on the sandwich kind of thin here uh, and just jumps right into um, I am just astonished that you are turning away and, and for the sake of time we can't get into all this but if you weren't here Sunday listen to the message online but we will come uh, it, we will pull it apart a little we just can't do it to the depth we did on Sunday Um, But notice that they were turning away. He was freaking out and so astonished that they had turned away so soon from the one who called. And so we have God's sovereign summoning and inviting them through grace out of Turkish and Asian paganism to know the living God. Out of Greco-Roman culture uh, and, and idolatry. To come and know the messianic kindness and the grace of Christ, as it says in our verse. And then they went to a different gospel. I can't believe you did that so soon. And notice that it's from grace to a different gospel. They turn from grace. Whenever we turn from grace, it's to a different gospel we've got to get that and we've got to talk to each other about that. We've got to speak into each other's husbands and wives, parents and children, you know, friends. Do you see how do you see how you're turning from grace? You see how you're turning from grace? Do you see how you're turning from grace? And what happens when, that's different than this. That's a different gospel. Come back. Come back to grace. Come back to grace, okay? We've got to be speaking that into each other's lives. Guzik writes, To turn away from the true gospel is always to turn away from the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see how you're turning away from grace? Some, sometimes Christians doubt if God's grace is really sufficient, so they throw in some different good works just to kind of gird themselves up and make themselves right with god and we've got to watch for that paul says at one point you've turned to weak and beggarly elements to try and shore yourself up rather than the grace of god he says that in colossians verse seven that other gospel is not another it's not another gospel it's a different of another kind is what the language speaks of And whoever comes preaching that other gospel is a troublemaker. Notice it says, there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. There are such subtle ways that it happens, and there are such blatant in your face ways that it happens. But anyone who comes preaching another gospel, which isn't really another gospel, they are troublemakers, they are agitators. They bring chaos with them and a wake of destruction. And you guys, we will go through times where people will come into this church and they will bring in a different gospel. I've been in churches where the Seventh-day Adventist prophet comes in. And he comes for months at a time. And, and during the services, he'll come and he'll sit over here and he'll talk to these people about how they're going to hell because they worship on Sunday. And then go over here and speak to these people because they worship, over, or they worship on Sunday. And then, and then I've been there where he finally just couldn't take it anymore. He came up and he tried to take over the pulpit from my pastor um, that, uh, you know, trying to put a yoke of rituals and religion on people that is counter the gospel of grace. It's another gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. It's, it's a crooked gospel. It stirs people up. It causes great distress. It causes great ag- agitation. And it's always someone who brings this in. False gospels don't just happen. Someone brings it in, and the people who bring it in, they usually have something Attractive about them, maybe charisma or eloquent speech no doubt could blow me out of the water in a speech speak off speak whatever you call them. <laughs> debate Excuse me, Mitchell <laughs> just kidding, I know I'm in good company, but and so we can't be swayed by their golden tongue we can't be swayed by their charisma we can't be swayed by the discourse that they're able to bring martin luther says note the resourcefulness of the devil heretics do not advertise their efforts or excuse me their errors murderers adulterers and thieves disguise themselves so the devil masquerades all this device and activity he puts on white to make himself look like an angel of light, and so we're not going to see him come in with the pitchfork and the you know pointy tail. They're going to come in and they're going to they're going to get people off by themselves, and they're going to be whispering and whispering over here and leading a little crew. And at Calvary Corvallis is going through it right now with a man that they had to ask, you cannot come to this church anymore. You can come, but you be quiet. You don't talk to anyone by themselves. You can sit and listen to the word of God, but you will not be talking to the people here. Uh, Of course, the last open mic that they had about a week and a half ago, who went up to grab a hold of it? Um, Yeah, it happens. Anyways, it's a distortion of the true gospel. It perverts the true gospel. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians that it's peddling the word of God. Let's See how it happened in Acts 15 verses 1 and 2. You guys can flip over there. I I forgot, I neglected to enter all the scriptures in, but that's okay. Sometimes we get a little little lazy in our Bible turning, don't we? Acts 15 verses 1 and 2. So this is right after Paul's first missionary journey, after he'd been to uh, the region of Galatia. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, there was a big debate there, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And then uh, verse 4, And when they come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them, But some of the sect of the Pharisees, uh, that's the Jewish religious leaders uh, who who had become Christians. They believed. They rose up saying, no, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So this is that group. This is that group of Pharisees who had you know they've come to Jesus but i mean you got to you got you got to understand they're coming out of judaism they're coming out of you know just feeling like they've got to have this works based righteousness and so they're they're struggling right now and they're wrestling through it and it just seems like man you you got to have keep keep getting people to become jews as we're out on our missionary journeys and um But whenever we bring a message of works for salvation, it's a perversion of the gospel, the gospel of grace. Um, Three other times, or two other times in Galatians, Paul says that these people trouble uh, the Galatians. They distort um, the gospel. Then he says in verse 8 of our text, uh, in uh, Galatians one eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. And so on Sunday, I I gave a list of things that, that are out there that you guys will probably have already been confronted with if you've been a Christian for very long, where people in our friends and in our community, and maybe even told you, That in order to really be saved and go to heaven, you've got to go door to door. You've got to distribute a certain amount of tracts. They maybe have said even that you've got to become a church member, maybe even here at Calvary Chapel, in order to be saved. Um, Perhaps you've been told that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, or that you've got to wear certain undergarments or not wear certain garments. Uh, You've got to dress a certain way, observe a certain day, uh, that you've got to be circumcised that you can't do work on the Sabbath, that you've got to read this literature, that you must fast, that you must give, uh, and that you must have daily devotions. And those are all kind of things that are just like, we've come in contact with almost all of those things. Uh, Perhaps you're told that you've got to speak in tongues in order to be born again. Or you're told that you've got to be a part of a discernment ministry, or that you've got to have a certain end times viewpoint. Or that you've got to be part of a political party or a part of a group in order to be a real Christian. That you can't be a Democrat and be a Christian. Guys, we cannot put these things on ourselves if the scriptures don't put them on us. It's tempting though, isn't it? I mean, I think we all know that. But it's not the true gospel when we put those weights upon each other. Now, while we're in Galatians and we go through Romans and we've taught Romans here, we also, which is championing grace, we've got the book of James, which also says, yes, and if you have tasted of that grace, it will move you to working for Jesus. And so there's that shoe leather Christianity in James that says, hey, you cannot say that you have faith, but have no works. Your faith is dead and useless. And so here at Calvary Chapel, man, we are encouraging people, gosh, be a part of this church we're encouraging people become members of this church. We're encouraging people get baptized. We're encouraging people go door-to-door, hand out tracts, be on the missionary team, serve in the local body, all of these things. But it's not so that you can be saved. That's already been done by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus, oh, I can't help but be obedient and be baptized, but open up my mouth and evangelize people, but be part of a local church, but use my gifts, See what they are and use them. If anyone preaches a different gospel than the gospel of grace, let them be accursed. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, and here's what the true gospel is that Paul preached. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. 1 Corinthians 15.3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. In that very simplified verse, the gospel that Paul proclaimed tells us that God is gracious to undeserving sinners. That's the gospel. It tells us that none of us will ever be able to do enough, be religious enough, clean up our act enough. Or make ourselves acceptable to God enough. And so we have a problem. We have sin. Unless God would come himself. And deal with the problem himself. We are doomed. He had to come in the flesh. And he had to be God as we talked before. As we see our sin and his Righteousness, we come to the end of ourselves. This is the gospel. We realize our spiritual bankruptcy and poverty, and we turn to Him in His grace and mercy for forgiveness and to fill up our cup of righteousness in Him. And He is glorified as He saves sinners. That is good news. That's the gospel. And I mentioned on Sunday that gospel comes from the word evangelion. Or it's more of an euangelion. And it means the good news from the battlefield. And I love that, being a little bit of a military historian. And I just picture, you know, that we win the battle and you get that guy who hops on the horse and goes riding back through, back to the rear of the line, back telling all the other soldiers, all the other, you know, uh, rear echelon guys, and then back through the villages. And he's just, you know, and he's like, we won, we won, you know, we beat them back, woo, yeah, you know, and and just everyone's rejoicing and screaming, and they're so excited that the battle's been won, and that's what we're supposed to do as evangelists, tell people of that good news, and maybe you have never partaken of that good news, that the battle's been won in Jesus Christ by his grace, and tonight on a Wednesday night, you can just Grab a hold of that good news, you can hear that good news, and you can let your heart rejoice. You can let the shackles and chains fall off your hands that have been binding you to some lie that you've got to do certain works to please God when He is a hundred percent pleased in you because of His Son Jesus. Verse nine, as we've said before, and so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Paul said it before, he'll say it again. I've said it before, I teach it again, I said it on Sunday, I say it again now. If you hear any other gospel preached, the Greek word is anathema for cursed. And it means let them be damned or let them be condemned. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Anathema. Cursed. And so how are we to treat those who preach and proclaim a false gospel in an age of political correctness? Do we need to speak the truth in love? We have examples in the scriptures of Jesus saying, Woe to you Pharisees! Beware of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Names that are listed. People that are called out. Groups that are called cults. How are we supposed to, people that are going around in our church, in our community, telling you you've got to work, you've got to be something in order to be saved. Oh, we love them. We, we speak to them and we evangelize to them. But that message is cancer. And it spreads. And it's satanic. And it's demonic. And people who receive it go to hell for all eternity. Your family members. Your children. Answer the door when they're there. Sounds like Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. they got this cute little flyer that they made up. Oh man, this is... Mom's gone. Let me listen. Let me talk. Let me try. You know? And when the door-to-door salesman is going by selling this special little drop to put in your water that's just this little bit of poison do you let them in and do you let them into your basement do you let it put in, put it in your water softener just, just go ahead and bring it in or do you say get away from me and get away from my neighborhood my friend chris cross you guys have met him he's spoke here before he's had mormon um relatives who as far as he knows, died in Mormonism. And just the best that we can do with that is that they're perishing and they will perish for all eternity. And that grieves him so much that when the door-to-door knockers come, he says, look, I love you and I'm not trying to be rude. I'm going to share the truth with you and then I'm going to tell you this. If you don't leave my neighborhood right now, I'm going to follow you door-to-door and I'm going to counter everything you say with the scriptures until you leave my neighborhood and they leave his neighborhood. (laughs) I mean, how do we treat people? We love them, but we tell them the truth, and we say the message, be damned, be cursed, anathema. Not in my neighborhood. I realize you look very religious. I, I understand that you're a sincere person, but you are sincerely wrong and you will take people to hell with you. And to try to be understanding and just not compromise at all, but just trying to, okay, I want to be able to speak. I began to listen to the Book of Mormon this week. And I'll tell you what, it starts out so Bible-seeming. Oh, this guy who... Ah, oh, he's from Jerusalem and he's a Jew and his, his dad fears God with all of his household. And oh, it's just so, ah, oh, it's like another testament, isn't it? Until it starts departing from grace. It's not another gospel. It's a perversion. It's twisting. Titus tells us that we're to reject these men. After the first and second warning, we reject them, knowing, Titus says, that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. The word reject means to refuse to accept, refuse to consider, refuse to submit to, refuse to take in for some purpose It's to throw back and to repulse and to spew out. It speaks of an immunological rejection. When the food bug goes in, the stomach makes it go out. And I think that we as a church have got to be real with how we deal with false gospels. 80% of the cults Claim to be christians i would say that 95 percent of christian counseling that i've come across is counter gospel anti-grace and anti-mercy of the lord jesus talking on the phone this week to a, a gal whose husband has left her and just so encouraged by her mercy her heart of mercy but hearing the counsel from the church that she's been getting from a Christian church to divorce her husband and for her husband to divorce her. Time alone will not suffice to express the judgment of God upon those who distort the gospel of grace. Anathema. Anathema upon Christian counselors. Anathema upon Bible... Christian Bible teachers, anathema upon the Mormons, anathema upon the Jehovah's Witnesses, anathema upon the Buddhists, anathema upon the Hindus, anathema upon any Calvary chapel that would depart from grace, anathema upon any church that would have church membership and saying that you've got to become a church member in order to truly become a Christian and in order to be saved, anathema upon any church that says you have to be baptized in order to be saved, Not my words. Look at what 2 John 7 says. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver, and this is Antichrist. Whip out your left behind series, people, because Antichrist is like swirling around in our church and in our communities and in our world. He's all over the place. Goes on to say. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Seems kind of intolerant, doesn't it? Two different times, just in my readings. In fact, today I just was like, ah, man, I really want to read something about church history. And so I opened up 131 um, people every Christian should know. And this guy came up again. His name is Athanasius. Okay, Athanasius, back in, uh, I think it was the third century. He was a disciple of um, Alexander of, um, or I'm sorry, it was, uh, not Alexander. yeah, Alexander of Alexandria. Sorry, that's how I got confused right there. And so Athanasius discipled as a little kid, man, as a little kid, his game that he'd play growing up was making disciples and baptizing people. And Alexander saw him down in the harbor baptizing people. And he's like, what are you guys doing? We're pretending to make Christians and baptize people. And so he's like, wow. And he takes this little Athanasius under his arm. And they become zealous for preaching Jesus together. And this was about the time that the Arian heresy began creeping into the church. Arian was a bishop who said, "Um, you know what? Jesus was begotten of the Father. Therefore, he was a created being. And he's not God. He was a created being. And so... Uh, This created um, this form of Gnosticism or Jehovah's Witness that was clear back in John's day. And so 1 and 2 John are written about this Jehovah's Witness of their day, Arius, the Arian heresy, he calls it Antichrist. Um, Basically, uh, there became a war between the Arians and between um, uh, Athanasius and his mentor Alexander, and as they would... um, preach the truth against that heresy uh, they would uh, many of the arians started a little song uh, and they sang this catchy little tune that said there was a time when the sun was not and this became a little song that just just got in my cry or however, i don't know if that's a saying that i should be i don't know what is that i'll research where that comes from before i ever say that again but <laughs> i think of it under the rib cage um and so What happened was Constantine was, you know, he was the king and the leader and kind of this head bishop guy. Constantine said, I don't like it when my bishops are fighting with each other. So we're going to get them together right now. And this uh, form, this getting together was called the Council of Nicaea. And it was there that thousands of bishops hashed out doctrine and theology and they all came to the understanding that the whole of scripture says that God would come in the flesh and, and the Messiah would come and he would die for the sins of the world and that it had to be God in the flesh who would die or else the sacrifice wouldn't be sufficient and the scriptures all pointed to that that God would at one time come in the flesh and that it was Jesus Christ and so the Nicene Creed was written that says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And there at the end of the Nicene Council, Arius refused to sign the Nicene Creed, and so he was banished as a heretic. And as time went on, it it appeared that Arius had somewhat recanted, and so Constantine wanted there to be unity, and so he ordered Athanasius to take him back, but because Athanasius said, no, he's trying to modify this creed, he's trying to twist it again, there's still some culticness in him. And so he wouldn't receive him back into the fold. And so then Athanasius was placed on trial, and all of the Arian heretics brought charges against Athanasius, like that he was charging people undue taxes, that he was. Um, sexually assaulting people and raping people and there as athanasius was brought onto trial uh, a woman stood up and said athanasius raped me he came and he forced himself upon me and he stole my good honor and athanasius sat there and he didn't say a single word and his disciple timotheus stood up and said when was i ever in your house and when did i ever touch you and she says, you know you did it. And they tricked everybody right there because uh, Timotheus was pretending to be Athanasius. And so, okay, you guys are tuning out, I'm sorry. It's a good story, come on, it's a church history, right? So they trick him and, uh, and she's taken out screaming and hollering and they were found to be liars and heretics just like their doctrine that they preach. But it didn't end there for years and years and years. In fact, um, I think all but 17 years of Athanasius' life he was in exile uh, because of persecution and calling out false teachers and uh, <clears throat> and standing up for the truth of who Jesus is. And at one point in a trial, he is told, the whole world is against you. To which he replied, well, then I am against the whole world. And so as we, as Christians, and at Calvary Chapel, you guys, we find the value and the necessity. In being faithful to plow straight lines in the word of God so that we are not deceived with any counterfeit gospels. And I just want you to know, you're going to hear it here. You're going to hear it here that we call out the cults. Not that we're better, I'm not better, it's grace. But for your protection, you've got to know when there's false doctrine around. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Verse 10 For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I'm telling you now, every time I call out a cult, I'm attacked for it. Every time. It's not popular it doesn't jive with 2016 United States of America politically correctness. It, it is a burr in our saddle. <laughs> but it's truth. And if I was seeking to please men and try to just grow a big church, I wouldn't be a slave of Jesus, and neither would you. If our desire is to please people, our packaging of the gospel must or would take priority over the content one old hymn says i'd rather have jesus than worldly applause i'd rather be faithful to his dear cause i'd rather have jesus than worldwide fame i'd rather be true to his holy name verse 11 but i make known to you brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man it's not man made to cajole the fancies of man In fact, there's many times that the gospel is an affront to man, man's system, and and it's called foolishness to the wisdom of this world. Really quick to show you that the scriptures and the gospel is not man-made. First of all, we see that the Bible is reliable, accurate, and trustworthy as an ancient document. Let me read this. I believe it's from uh, Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. We know this because the text itself is reliable. We know this from study and comparison to ancient manuscripts. And we know this because archaeology has consistently confirmed and supported the Bible record. And it has never contradicted the Bible. If you have Netflix, there's a really good video out right now called A Pattern of Evidence for the Exodus. And there's this man, private dude, doing research that shows that the Exodus really happened in history according to how the Bible uh, says that it did. So it's just so cool to study archaeology and see that. Um, it has never contradicted the Bible. People, places, and events in the Bible are repeatedly verified by archaeology. I encourage you to get on YouTube and look up the Bible versus the Book of Mormon, DNA versus the Book of Mormon, uh, the Bible versus Joseph Smith, and you'll see evidence brought up that archaeologically everything that the Scripture says ever happened in a certain location, you can go there and find artifacts from that battle anything that the Book of Mormon has said has happened, you can find zero evidence that any of it ever happened anywhere. And bishops are confronted on this type of evidence. So we have a reliable document here. As Paul says, I didn't get this from some dude scheming it up somewhere. This is something that's been given from God, and it is true, and it is reliable. Second, we know the Bible is unique and special among all books ever written. Listen to this. It's unique in its continuity, being written over 1,600 years, over 60 generations, by more than 40 authors on uh, three different continents, in different circumstances, in places, in different times, in different moods, in three languages, concerning scores of controversial subjects. It all speaks with one unique voice. Okay, so there's continuity, which shows that it's true It's unique in its circulation because it's the most published and popular book ever. It's unique in its translation. The first book translated, having been translated into more languages than any other book. It is unique in its survival, having survived the ravages of time, manual transcription, persecution, and criticism. It's unique in its honesty, dealing with the sins and failures of its heroes, it's unique in its influence, having far more greater influence on culture and literature than any other book in existence. I encourage you guys to, to download and to look at Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. He goes on for quite a while an in incredible evidence that shows that this is a reliable uh, account. I'm going to cruise through the book here. Uh, the chapter for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, I studied a uh, I listened to a study right before Easter uh, at Biola University by dr. Gary Habermas and the this um, the seminar was called "How the Resurrection of Jesus is Changing modern scholarship and he He spoke about how skeptics would say that the gospel records speak of miracles and that disqualifies them so a lot of the skeptics would say if there's miracles you can't say it's a reliable document or a reliable account then he goes on to say well that's interesting because the greco-roman biographies or bios is a genre of biography which is known as one of the most reputable writings in the ancient world one of the fathers of history Herodotus. um called the father of history by Julius Caesar himself. Um, also Pliny writing biographies, wrote of miracles and prophecies. And Livy, who was the second historian only to Tacitus, wrote of a Roman history of Romulus and Ramus, boys raised by wolves. And yet all historians count these as trustworthy accounts. And so... That being said, you've got skeptics that will listen to Roman histories that have miracles and legends, but they won't listen to gospel accounts until you've got fair inquirers like Michael Martin, who's an atheist philosopher, who honestly said, we only have one eyewitness of Jesus risen from the dead, and that's Paul. Now, the Bible tells us we've got, only, we've got over 500. But here we have a skeptic doing research and saying, we've got one. Don't argue with them about the other ones. Just use Paul with him. So he's saying Paul was an eyewitness. And even skeptics would say that. So when we have Galatians chapter 1 saying, I didn't receive this from any man-made document. I received it because I spent time with the risen Jesus. Even skeptic atheists would say, Paul really did receive this from the risen Jesus. That's exciting stuff. Verse 13, for you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. Those are key words there, persecuting beyond measure, trying to destroy it. Verse 14, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, this is really cool. It's right in line with Isaiah and Jeremiah, where they were told before I knew you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I've set you apart To be a prophet to the nations. That's the same call that Paul had on his life. Separated from his mother's womb. Called by grace. To reveal verse 16. His son in me. That I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and I remained with him for 15 days. So, so interesting. We have a new convert that didn't go hang out with the apostles to be discipled. He went away with Jesus to be discipled. For three years, he was gone. And then for another, I think it says 14 years, chapter two, verse one, he was discipled by Jesus jesus the risen jesus a skeptic would even say this guy really had an encounter with the risen jesus that's where paul received his training and then after those three years he went back with peter and we're going to see in galatians later on he was checking out to see if what he received from jesus matched what the apostles had received from jesus and it checked out perfectly Whatever you ever receive, a vision, a dream, a prophecy, you can always check it according to the word of God. If it doesn't line up, then you can toss it and call it anathema. I like what one guy said. As Paul didn't go hang out with Peter until years went by, he was seeking inspiration, not indoctrination. Verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, Now concerning the things that I write you indeed before God, I do not lie. Real quick, it's so cool that he said that he saw James the Lord's brother because the Gospels tell us that James didn't believe in Jesus and thought Jesus was crazy until he saw him risen from the dead. And now he's considered an apostle. Verse 21, Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and uh, Cilicia. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And so you can read all about this in Acts chapter nine, um, his testimony of all of this. There's some major drama in Paul's life right when he gets saved. People are scared of him because he was just killing Christians. Um, He's running from Jews because he's been preaching Jesus all of a sudden. Uh, It's a major action, you know, uh, drama account. Um, And finally, verse 23 was so cool because people are hearing about, there's these rumors going around the church uh, that Paul got saved. But man, he's the guy that was just killing Christians and trying to destroy and trying to get people to recount. And it says in verse 24, and they glorified God in me. And that's a great way to end this chapter. Um, Man, I, I had way more notes and way more stories to go through with Paul's life, but I got a little hung up on Um, The whole calling out false teachers and that sort of thing. Uh, But Acts 9, you can read Paul's story. You can read of it. But as we look at this whole chapter, there's a couple times that we see that the purpose of God saving sinners by his election, we see election, we see God's sovereign election in this chapter. And then we see that he gave his life for them. And we see that he calls sinners out of sin and gives them grace and sets them apart for his works and for his service all of that is for the very last verse here god's glory when people hear your testimony you know how cool to hear marcy the other night or the other day at the bar at the park when we were eating sandwiches marcy's telling her testimony and and man she's just giving god glory and my eyes are getting all watery giving god glory For what he's done in Marcy's life. And the same is true for you and your testimony. Oh, Shannon, wasn't she the one that, you know, Connie, you know, man, she was the one that was, you know, Fred, a Frenchman, coming over, being a buckaroo and doesn't believe in, you know, bound to Catholicism, you know. And then, oh, but then, man, then the grace of God comes into these people's lives and he captures them and he gives them grace and he calls them to ministry and to purpose and now they're serving god and it gives god glory it gives god glory ron why don't you come on up and uh